Our reading this morning is James chapter 5, coming towards the end of our study in the book of James. And uh, we've reached this passage in James chapter 5, verse 13 to 18, and we'll read that just now together. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We'll end our reading there, and this is the Word of God. Uh, This section has produced a a bit of controversy, uh, a disagreement, over the years, and it's my hope that we can move past it this morning and find something that's helpful and beneficial for us in our everyday circumstances of our lives. James is very blunt, isn't he, in some of his statements. They're very practical, and uh, and this can be helpful, but also it can give us difficulty and cause us scratching our heads at certain times. So at the end, I'm going to ask the pastor to come over to this side and if you form a nice socially distanced line with your questions for him, I'll be making a swift exit out this door and uh, you can try and catch me if you can. But you may want to chat to me afterwards about this, but hopefully it'll be helpful for us as we think about this this morning. It's one of the benefits of having a, a, a consecutive uh, ministry going through a book that you have to tackle some of the the topics that are more difficult that you might rather not cover. But the main thrust of these few verses is on prayer. Uh, James is actually talking about prayer, and, and he's already covered that and mentioned prayer in different occasions, what we should be asking for. And uh, for James, uh, a faith that works is a faith that prays, that prayer is, a, is an outworking of our, of our faith. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, he's not repeating himself when he ta- tackles this, co- this point of prayer, but he's, he's being specific. He, he mentions three particular applications, personal prayer, verse 13, ministerial prayer, verse 14, uh, to 15, a corporate prayer in 16, and then an example of prayer in verses 17 to 18. So firstly, personal prayer in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering or in trouble, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So James has been uh, writing much about suffering and troubles, hasn't he? He, he starts right into it in his letter, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And the word for suffering here is, uh, it's really to be in trouble, to be afflicted. It's a, it's a special kind of, of suffering, not, not a general suffering, most likely suffering for your faith, a persecution-type uh, suffering. 
Uh, and that's, that's the context of the letter, isn't it? Uh, in the scattered church that James is writing to. And this kind of uh, suffering or trouble is something that we're to expect as Christians. It's, it's to be normal. Paul writes uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. However, I'm sure this uh, call to prayer in persecution is not just restricted to that because we have the other teaching of scripture, don't we? And we're encouraged to bring everything to God in prayer in all our situations of difficulties. So in Philippians 4 verse 6, Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or in 1 Peter 5, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we're encouraged uh, we're told to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. So when we're in trouble, we pray. That's our response. That should be our natural response as Christians when difficulties come, that we turn to God in prayer. We talk to him about it, for he cares for us. So we're not to grumble. We're not to complain. We're to pray. And it's right to pray for the trouble to be removed. That's a right thing to pray. Paul prayed for the removal of his thorn afresh. The Lord prayed in the garden that the cup might be taken from him, if that was possible. And it's right to pray these things. But in both these examples, we see that that's not always the outcome. God doesn't always answer our prayers in that way, that the trouble is removed. And rather, he gives us often grace to go through the trouble, to walk through the waters and the fire. So then, what's the point of praying? If we're not going to get the outcome that we want, why pray? Well, as I've already said, prayer is the outworking of our faith. It demonstrates that we, as professed followers of the Lord Jesus, are depending on him, are depending on God. It shows that we are subject to his, uh, uh, and submissive to his sovereignty. Prayer helps us grow, helps us grow in our humility, recognize that we aren't in control of everything and we have to subject ourselves to the God who is in control. Suffering turns us to God and it, it forces us to go to him and we call out to him in our distress, we become honest with God, don't we? We pour out our hearts and the, the facade is often taken away and we become fervent in our prayers when the difficulties come. I'm sure you've come across this change in attitude in people who even don't profess to be Christians. When they're in trouble, they pray. We, we saw this clearly at the outreach event we had over in the village kitchen a, a, a while back. And people were happy to admit that when things were difficult, they prayed to God. When things get difficult, when things get serious, trouble drives us to God. But it's not just in times of trouble. Sure it's not, for, for James goes on. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Cheerful here is the idea of mirth, of happiness, uh, good times. Uh, when you're not in trouble, 
Uh, when you're encouraged, when you're positive, what should we do? Praise God. Again, we turn to God. Our lives need to be lived in reference to the God we profess to serve. We sing psalms. We, we sing songs of joy and of thanksgiving. Singing is a natural response when we're happy, isn't it? You know, often you find someone humming to themselves uh, a little tune if they're happy or whatever, relaxed, when we're in good spirits. It's a natural response that God has given to us. And uh, we've, uh, we've been prevented from doing it in recent months, haven't we? And we're glad to get back to some form of singing, limited uh, as it is. Uh, it's, uh, it's good for us. Uh, but there's more going on here. The word for cheerful is used actually three times in Acts 27 when Paul's on his journey, on his, uh, he's on the ship, and he's shipwrecked. And he uses it to, uh, to say to the sailors, take heart, be encouraged, be cheerful, for God is in control. Likewise, when, when Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, they were beaten, they were chained, they were suffering, Obviously in trouble, you would think, persecution, trouble. Uh, what was their response in Acts 16? Well, they, they were praying, yes, and singing hymns to God, and the, the prisoners were listening. So it's in all circumstances, whether we're in difficulties, or whether we're joyful, and sometimes they come at the same time, uh, as we've seen with, with Paul and Silas. And uh, we're to bring it to God. Everything is to be in reference to God. So we'll face many circumstances in our lives, some difficult, some blessing, and some at the same time. And it's a good testimony for us, uh, for those who are watching, for those who are listening, that we turn to God in prayer and that we turn to God in praise. Just like the prisoners in the, in the prison when Paul and Silas uh, prayed and sung. So when God moved, the prisoners responded as well, didn't they? None of the prisoners ran, uh, ran away. There can be uh, an erroneous view that for the Christian life is to be one where we're to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. But that's not so. That's not so. We see in, in Scripture that trouble comes as well. But whatever circumstances comes, we turn to God, for he is the one who is in control. So someone has put it like this. When the world is on top of you, or if you're on top of the world, we should pray and praise God. So prayer changes us, even though it may not change the circumstances, and we've seen that God doesn't always take the trouble uh, away from us. But prayer changes us, doesn't it? Psalm 18 is an example. David comes to God in despair for his life. So verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. And then the rest of Psalm 18, almost 44 verses, are the response to that prayer, and it results in praise. Uh, 
trouble resulting in prayer and praise. The situation was the same. situation hadn't changed, and yet uh, David is able to praise God and to look to him and find strength and help in the difficulties. So James says, Is any one among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. But secondly, James considers ministerial prayer, verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So James asks here, is anyone sick? The word for sick here seems to suggest uh, a real weakness or overbearing illness. The fact that the elders are called to come to the sick person seems to suggest that the sick person isn't able to come uh, to the elders. So this is not a trifle. This is not a cough and a sniffle. Uh, it's, a, it's a serious Ill, debilitating illness. And James gives that person what they should do. They should call for the elders. This is part of the normal functioning of the local church in the plurality of elders. And if you're not in a church, then to quote a, a well-known film and song, who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? It's part of the normal functioning of a church. And it's a recognition on the part of the, the sick person of those who are in authority, who have been given responsibility to care and to nurture the church. The elders, there's a responsibility on them to come. Uh, the elders, they, they have a caring role. They're there to look out for the, the spiritual welfare of their flock, for those who have been, they've been given responsibility for them. And James goes on to spell out what they're to do, their function when they're called. They're to come to the sick person, they're to pray over them, they're to anoint them with oil. Now, anointing with oil is thought uh, to be symbolic. It speaks of a, a setting apart of a, for a specific reason. Uh, there is the idea in, in the Bible that the anointing of oil can be for medicinal purposes. So you have an example of the Good Samaritan where he poured in the oil and the wine. Uh, that's, that seems to be more of a, a physical thing, so probably bruising and cuts and things he was attending to there, whereas this sickness seems to be more of a... Uh, an internal debilitating disease or whatever, uh, but it, so, so here it seems to be more symbolic, the anointing of the oil, and it very much personalizes the whole event. There's a, there's a ministering to the individual by the elders. There's, there's something powerful in, in being present with someone, isn't there? We've missed out on that and come to realize that, I think, over this last lot of months as we've been forced to keep separate, but there's something powerful about being present with someone and something powerful about the sense of touch with people as well, where you connect with someone at a physical uh, level. It brings us close, and that closeness will affect the type of prayer that you pray. This is not a prayer that's just going down a prayer list, knocking off your items uh, as you dutifully pray for those you've promised to pray for. No, this is an intimate prayer, uh, a prayer that would be fervent, a prayer that's heard 
by the one who's being prayed for. And it's personal, it's specific to that person. And so there's a real intimacy, uh, a fervency, uh, an assured uh, sense in this prayer of the elders and this person who is sick. So as we deal with this section, let me just uh, run down a couple of things which, uh, a couple of interpretations that, that I, I don't want us to get sidetracked with uh, and which, which some people can suggest comes uh, from this sort of uh, teaching. I don't, know, don't want us to, uh, to get taken up with these, but, but I think they're worth mentioning. So some people think this passage supports the idea of extreme unction. So when you're facing death, uh, you're to be anointed and absolved of your sins. To my mind, this clearly isn't what's being taught here. The intention of James uh, seems to be one of healing and restoration of the person, not of imminent uh, death. Uh, and there's no sense of the elders uh, absolving the person here. Uh, some use it to support the idea of healing ministries or divine healing ministries where they, people hold rallies and call people to come uh, and bring their sick. And again, this doesn't seem to be the case here because it's very personal. It's the individual who is to call the elders to come to them. It's not the elders who are putting on a special meeting and say, come to us uh, for healing. And again, it's in the local church context. It's the local elders who are being called. It's not uh, somebody... Uh, somebody with special gifting and healing. Some eminent church leaders think that this passage is, is no longer relevant for us today as the, as the gifts have ceased, so this, this, uh, the need for this healing has, has ceased as well. And Martin Henry, John Calvin would be among those as well. And yet for me, there's no mention of uh, miraculous gifts here being attributed to the elders or indeed uh, gifts of healing being, being attributed anywhere to the elders. And, uh, and so, so the, it's not something I think that can be easily dismissed like that. Still others go, on, go to the extreme saying that uh, this is the only true response for those of us who are sick and we shouldn't go to the doctor or to the hospital, but rather we should, we should be prayerful, we should be faithful, we should getting getting the church elders to pray over us, and that's the only response. Again, clearly incorrect that the Lord himself endorses the use of doctors as he compares himself to, to, to those, uh, those who are sick need a, need a doctor, uh, and those, those who are sinful uh, go to the Lord. We also have Dr. Luke, who has given us two books in our New Testament, and the example of Paul writing to Timothy to take, uh, take a little wine for his stomach and the like. So we, we have been blessed with medicines, with doctors, with, with good resources that we are to enjoy. In fact, they themselves are gifts of God and ways in which God blesses us and heals us at times. And then still others say that this passage teaches that no Christian should ever be sick or unwell. And if they are, then they must be in a state of sin, where they don't possess enough faith. Of course, the atonement, the Christ's death on the cross, is effective immediately for us as soon as we believe, but there are many parts of it that are not fully completed until we go to be with Christ in heaven. So we're promised new bodies. 
We're promised uh, never to cry again, that we'll never be sick, no more sickness, no more temptation to sin. But these are not for now. These are for the future when we're with Christ. And although we're forgiven, although we're saved, yet we still have to live in the fallen world and we have to live in the, uh, with the consequences of a fallen world and the results of uh, sin and sickness and the curse that is upon, uh, upon our world. We have to wait for the new heaven and the new earth before we enjoy all those benefits. And we've seen in this, this book even that suffering and trials and difficulties are clearly taught in the Bible. That's what we must face as Christians. All God's blessings are provided as gifts of his grace. And to say that someone is not healed because of their lack of faith contradicts the teaching of scripture. To presume a life of ease and blessing is a mistake. This, uh, once again, I think shows the need for scripture not to be taken out of context. We need to balance scripture against scripture and not just pull individual verses out and base theology on them. So how can this passage help us? If, if it doesn't mean those things, then what, what does it mean here? How can this passage help us? Well, the, the plain reading of the passage states that it's the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Prayer of faith is a statement that in, shows us that there is a spiritual element involved here, doesn't it? Salvation is a, is a primary need. Uh, this is a, a prayer of a, a saved person, someone who has committed uh, their life to the Lord, who is trusting in the forgiveness that's offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual prayer. Healing and ease is a secondary thing. The primary need is for our salvation. And as we saw in the first part in verse 13, uh, God doesn't always give us relief from our troubles, and that includes our illness. But James here states that they will be raised and that they will be forgiven. So what is going on here? How do we reconcile this? I think it's helpful for us if we look in verse 14 with a little phrase, in the name of the Lord. Names in the Bible often have great significance um, about who the person is. It's not just a tag, really, that we have. We like the sound of a name, so we use the name. So names have significance, and the name of the Lord has with it the understanding of the, God's nature about who he is. It's in keeping with who he is, his very nature and what he wants, what he desires, what he wills. We have... Uh, several examples in the New Testament where we're called to pray uh, and the prayer is connected with the name of the Lord and so will be fulfilled. So here's a few examples from a few from Jesus, uh, his own lips, and then one from uh, first uh, from John, uh, first John. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's Matthew 18. Uh, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 15. And then in 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So you see here that there's a, there's a connection with asking in the name of the Lord or asking in the will of the Lord, and it will be granted, it will be answered, it will be uh, provided. Uh, and it's an underlying scriptural principle that prayer is only answered if it is according to the will of God, according to his nature, according to the name of the Lord. It cannot go outside of who God is or what he desires or what he wants, for he is sovereign and he is in control. So Robert Law has said, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but rather it is getting God's will done on earth. So the Lord's prayer includes the line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So James here is not talking about a flippant, casual, poorly thought through prayer or event. No, this is something serious that's going on. This is a, a spiritual uh, event that's happening here. Both the one who calls and the elders who come must be in agreement that this is the Lord's will for healing. Now, even if that happens, we can have different outcomes. So, it has happened that two Christian people are sick and seriously sick. Both call for the elders who come, who pray, believing, anointing with oil, yet one deteriorates and dies and the other recovers and is well. So what's going on? Well, again, it's demonstrating, I think, that God is sovereign. Man is fallible and only has limited understanding. The outcome is always subject to the will of God, for it's done in his name. And yet it's still right to pray for healing. It's right to pray for the outcome that you want. But the Lord is sovereign, and the Lord will do as he pleases. But we also have the problem here, don't we? James also seems to link the sickness in, in the question to the person's sin, and that gives us a bit of problem as well. Of course, sickness and suffering uh, is a result of original sin. All sickness and suffering is a result of uh, sin. We can say that we're under the curse and, uh, but here we have reference to the sins being forgiven. There seems to be a clear link between the sickness and sin. And of course, there are instances when sickness is as a result of sin. And there are examples of the Lord using illness as a judgment, particularly in the Old Testament. Um, and indeed, Paul refers in the case of uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, referring to the Corinthians' misuse of the Lord's table, he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But equally, we have our Lord Jesus declaring that there are instances of sickness and disability that are not the result of personal or other sin. In fact, it's dangerous for us to assume uh, 
that they are as a result of a person's sin. So in John 9, uh, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So indeed, rather than being as a result of sin, a person's sickness or illness uh, in a person's life might very well be to actually display the glory of God in their life and, and uh, could be as a result of obedience. So we have the example of Job, which James mentioned just a few verses earlier. A, a life well lived and yet difficulty and illness came upon him. Uh, So we must never jump to conclusions that sickness is a result of sin. And again, it's helpful here, I think, if we look at uh, uh, the specifics. And the key word here for us, I think, is if. If he has sinned. If there is a direct link here to the sickness from a sin, then this demonstration of faith and repentance will result in Forgiveness. How do we know that? Well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1 and 9. So again, it's God that's forgiving here, not the elders. And if we come uh, in faith and repentance and confession, God forgives the believer. In the context, uh, in the context where the elders are called and the sickness is thought to be a consequence of of sin, there would be confession and repentance required. The therefore in verse 16 links the need for confession to what has gone before. Indeed, the idea of normal church discipline by the elders may actually be in play here, that idea of the elders coming, confession and restoration that comes not just uh, to the church but also in a physical sense here could be what James is getting at. So then we're moving into verse 16, and and that leads us into a wider sense of the the corporate sense of of prayer and caring for each other. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, or the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. So here James is in encouraging corporate prayer. He's widening out from just the responsibility of the elders to praying for each other. Uh, That sense of togetherness that we have in in the local church and responsibility for each other. He also encourages confession, but but it doesn't appear to be a call for for washing all our our dirty laundry in public. Uh, But our recognition, I think, that public sin requires Uh, an element of public confession and repentance. As we read from 1 John 1 and 9, private sins requires private confession to God and the Lord forgives, for he is faithful. But if we have sinned against a brother or a sister, there must be reconciliation, and that starts with an admission of the sin and sorrow for, for the sin which then should be rewarded with forgiveness and with reconciliation. And often this is required on both sides, for we're all sinful and we often respond to different situations 
in sinful ways. Or there may be times in the context of close friendships or maybe Christian mentoring that's going on or in pastoral oversight where confessing your sins to the person brings help and accountability. There's no sense here that we're intermediaries or dispensing uh, forgiveness and absolution of sins with each other. Rather, it's a, it's a natural functioning of a healthy church body as we share our lives together, as we care for each other, encourage each other, as we pray for each other, that there may be times when we need to uh, share or uh, confess our sin to each other so that uh, someone can help us with that or pray more earnestly or effectively for us, or indeed hold us accountable for our actions, for our sin. Honesty with each other is being called for here. Honesty uh, that results in humility before each other and for each other. The righteous person doesn't mean someone without sin. That's obviously what, not what James is calling for here, because he's talking about confessional as well. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. Of course, we know that. It's Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us or given to us. But as we seek to grow and discover more and more of the mind of Christ, which is all of our goal, as we mature and Christians and as we pray, we learn to pray more in line with God's will as we discover who God is as we discover what he desires in his word. So as we pray in the name of the Lord in accordance with his will, then our prayers will be effective because we're praying in the name of the Lord. We're praying in the Lord's will and the Lord will answer. It takes effect. However, if we hold on to sin, Sin hinders our relationship with God and it hinders our prayers. So we have the example of Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Harbored and cherished sin breaks fellowship with God and our brothers and sisters. So there is a link between sin and prayer and confession and prayer. I wonder, do we value corporate prayer do we value praying for each other? Is that a priority for us? Finally, James ends with an example of prayer in verses 17 and 18. Uh, he uses one of the prophets, uh, Elijah, and he, he describes him as having a nature like ours. He's just like us, James says. He's variable, he's changeable. Uh, he's good days and bad days. He's trouble and cheery. Uh, he's sickness. Uh, he wavers in his faith. He, he's just like us. And the incident he's referring to is uh, when Ahab has sinned. He's, he's leading the people astray. And uh, Elijah prays for the heavens to close. And there's no rain for three and a half years. Uh, then there's the whole incident on Mount Carmel where God answers uh, with fire and consumes the sacrifice. And God tells Elijah that he's going to send rain. And so Elijah goes uh, and prays for this. But that's a bit odd, isn't it? So God says, I'm going to send rain. So why doesn't Elijah just wait for the rain? God has said it's going to happen. 
And so it will happen. But Elijah goes and prays. And he prays fervently, it said. Yeah, and he, he prays expectantly because he sends his servant out to, to look for the rain coming. But the servant comes back and says, no, there's no clouds yet. And, and he sends him back again. And he does this seven times. So there's, there's persistence in his prayer. Yet God has said it's going to happen. And eventually the rain comes. James, I think, is illustrating for us uh, again that our prayers need to align with God's will. God has said it's going to happen, and yet uh, Elijah prays for the very thing that God says is going to happen. He prays fervently, he prays persistently, and eventually God answers in that way. It's an illustration for us, I think, to see that prayer closes heaven and opens heaven according to the will of God who makes it happen as he pleases. So we see that the results don't depend on the person. Elijah, he's, James is saying, he's not some great guy. He's just like us. And look what can happen. The difference is in the God, in the, the, the point, the one whom we, we pray to, the one whom our faith is in. The results don't depend on the person or our faith but on a generous, gracious God. Private prayer, no matter what our circumstances, we bring them to God in prayer and in praise, for everything comes through the hand of a loving and gracious God, whether it's good or evil. Ministerial prayer, the normal working of the local church, leaders caring uh, for the people, praying for their flock, corporate prayer, our responsibility for each other, to share in each other's lives openly, honestly, humbly, praying in foreign prayers and living righteous lives. I wonder, are we good examples of prayer, of dependence on God? For faith that works is faith that prays. Let us pray. Loving Father, we, we thank you that uh, you are sovereign and in control of all things. And Father, we recognize that we are sinful. We are not deserving anything from your hand. In fact, what we deserve is your judgment and your wrath and to be put away from your presence for all eternity. So, Father, we thank you that any good and any blessing that we have is because of your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Father, that we can come to you in our difficulties, in our troubles, and in our happiness and in our mirth. We can come to you and pray, and we can come and praise. And we thank you that you hear us. Father, we ask that as your people, you might align our hearts with yours so that when we pray, we might pray aright and that we might see you working in great power. Father, we pray that we might be good examples so that when others look at us, they might see our trust in you, see our faith in you, no matter what our circumstances, so that they too might turn to you in faith and repentance and know 
the blessings of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that uh, this passage might be of help to us as we think about it this day, and that we, in turn, might uh, be able to be real and genuine with our brothers and sisters, that we might truly care and truly pray for each other, that we might know your blessing together. Help us now as we remember the Lord in his death and sacrifice on the cross. We ask it in his precious and lovely name. Amen.